Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, we are navigating through the New Testament, and we've done Mark, and we've done Matthew, and today we are going to do Luke, and you guys tell me what are Matthew, Mark, and Luke referred to as? What type of Gospels are they? They are the Synoptic Gospels, and why do we call them Synoptic? It's... Similar in view, but different. Different perspectives, but through through the same lens, but different camera angles. So telling the same story, but through different audience purposes, different writers. If you remember Mark, um, who's the audience of Mark? Who's he writing to? Mark is writing to Gentiles. Okay. Gentiles, especially in Rome, who are undergoing... Persecution, okay. And Mark was a traveling companion of both Paul and Peter. He got most of his material from Peter, okay. Matthew, we looked at last week, Matthew was written predominantly to Jews. Matthew was Jewish. He was a tax collector. What was the main purpose in Matthew writing his gospel? It was to convince Jews that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, using a lot of Old Testament terminology, the, the big focus was the kingdom of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, the king, the king of the kingdom. Okay? Now we get to Luke. Okay? So let's talk a little bit about Luke as the author in the background. Um, we know that Luke is the author because if you go to Luke chapter 1, let's go there. He does not identify himself, but he does tell us a lot about himself and a little bit about his audience, okay? So it's very, very important that the preface or the introduction to Luke sets the stage for how Luke is written, why Luke is written, and the whole basis for the gospel of Luke, okay? So let's let's look there in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Okay. So Paul, or Luke here says, I'm not an eyewitness, okay? I was not there like Matthew was there or like John was there, but I'm going to be a good investigative reporter and I'm going to compile as much information as I can from eyewitnesses to write an orderly account. Okay, so what Luke is going to do is not our media today, but good journalism what type of journalism is good journalism? 
You go try to get as many eyewitness accounts as you can. And what do you do? You interview them. You ask them questions. You try to get as much information as you can. So Luke goes and gets all the information that he can, interviews as many people as he can, and he's going to write an orderly account of the gospel. Okay? So what do you think is going to show you something about Luke's gospel in terms of length? It's going to be the longest because he got all this information. So Luke is the longest. He had access to earlier narratives, and he did a thorough investigation himself. And he's writing to most excellent Theophilus. We'll talk about that in just a moment, okay? So Luke is um, a very, very precise, very well-educated man. So let's talk about Luke the man. Luke was a Gentile, okay? Luke is Latin, Lucius. You ever heard the term Lucius or Lucius? That's what his name was. We've just transliterated it Luke, okay? So he's a Gentile, which makes it very weird so far, right? Was Mark a Gentile? No. Was Matthew a Gentile? Was John a Gentile? Luke is a Gentile. He's the only gospel writer who's a Gentile. So that should tip your hand to try to tell you who his audience is going to be. Okay, is he going to write to Jewish people? Probably not. Okay? Luke was highly educated. If you go read Luke and Acts, it probably has some of the highest level of Greek in the New Testament as far as just the writing style, the education. What else do we know about Luke? He was a historian. And he was, whoops, the big one. Luke was a doctor. Very, very important when you think about Luke being a doctor. How many of you are, have been in the medical profession before? Raise your hand. How many of you are in the, okay. What does a doctor, a good doctor, have to do? He's a good observer of people, spends a lot of time with people, diagnoses issues with people, can read people pretty well, okay? So that's important when you think about Luke because Luke has a different take on how people show up in the gospel. Okay, and he's a historian because he got access to all this information to write the gospel. So what's the purpose? What's the purpose of his writing the gospel of Luke? Luke's audience. Okay, who's he writing to? Oh, excellent, Theophilus. Now, what in the world does Theophilus mean? You'll know these words, just you don't know them together. Okay, so we talked about what's Theophilus, okay? What does Theo mean? God. We get our word theology from that, God. Anybody know what philos is? The word Philadelphia? Yeah, God, God lover. Or the one who loves God. Now, there's a big debate over this. Was Theophilus a literal man that Paul wrote to? Or is it a metaphor or a euphemism for a group of Christians, Gentile Christians in an area that were God lovers? We really don't know. There's some debate out there. Is it a literal person? Or is it he using this as kind of a metaphor? I tend to, um, and, the, and the reason it's hard is because there's not a lot of historical evidence 
to, to really pinpoint who this individual is. There's some evidence, but there's not. So, so scholars debate, is it a literal person or is it a group of people? Regardless of who it is, the purpose is to, to write to people, to give them. What's his purpose? He says right there, I want to give an orderly account so that you have certainty of the things you've been taught. So what's Luke's purpose? It's going to be orderly, and it's to help you be certain in your faith. Now let's talk about orderly here for a moment, because how does Mark start? It just, boom, starts, right? No, I mean, Jesus comes and it starts. How does Matthew start? Matthew starts with a genealogy. How does John start? John, we'll talk about that next week if we get there. It's more theological. Luke, we're going to do it orderly. So we're going to start with all of the background, all of the history. We're going to make sure we've got our dates and our leaders and our figures. And so he's going to write an orderly account. What are the characteristics of the Gospel of Luke? It is comprehensive. It is the longest book in the New Testament. It takes about two and a half hours to read if you're an average speed average speed of a reading to read the whole thing to sit down and read it it's going to take you two and a half hours in your day okay now trivia question who wrote the most volume wise in the new testament most people say paul incorrect luke wrote the most when you take acts and luke together when you take Acts and Luke together, sheer volume-wise, it adds up to be more in length than all of Paul's letters. Now, if you take Hebrews, which there's some debate out there. Some people think Luke wrote Hebrews. Some people think Paul wrote Hebrews. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. If you just take the anonymous author of Hebrews off the table, the majority of the New Testament was written by Luke, a Gentile. Most people don't think that. They think Paul Paul has more books, right? But as far as pure volume, Luke has written more volume when you take Luke and Acts together. It's universality. This is very, very key in the Gospel of Luke. He is a Gentile. Okay, Mark, written to Roman Christians in Ro- Rome who are undergoing persecution. Matthew, written to Jews. Luke is writing to this entire Greco-Roman, Greek-speaking culture that spans more of a, it has more of a universal appeal to it. So he's not going to be so much saying, Jesus is the Messiah, I'm going to prove it from the Old Testament because you Jews aren't getting it. And it's not going to be, you Romans are struggling persecution in Rome, I need to, that's, that's the purpose of my writing. It's going to be, there's this huge Gentile population of people that aren't Jews. Luke's audience is very, very broad. Okay, it's got a universal appeal to it. Luke is interested in people. Now, here's where it gets very interesting, especially women. Luke writes more about women than any other gospel writer, just different stories, okay? Women had little social status in the Roman Empire during that time. Luke is the only one that has the story of Mary, the Magnificat. Mary doesn't show up in any other Gospels, the whole Jesus being born of a virgin, the angel coming to Mary, that's only in Luke. The story of Elizabeth, the prophetess Anna, the widow at Nain, and the ministry of Jesus funded by women, those are all only mentioned in Luke's Gospel. So Luke has a special attention towards 
women. Not that Matthew and Mark and, and John don't. It's just for Luke's perspective, he's, he's focusing on certain stories in his gospel that are going to talk about how Jesus treated women, especially those in that culture, women had no rights. Who else is he going to focus on? The unclean. He has more stories about lepers. He's the one that's got the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan shows up in Luke. It doesn't show up in any of the other ones. And he's going to talk a lot about the rich and the poor. So Luke is saying, okay, in this Greco-Roman world, in this Jewish world, women, the poor, the slaves, and the unclean are the, all the, the outcast of culture. And so he's going to focus on how Jesus relates to those type of people. Now, as a doctor, don't you think Luke would have dealt more with those people than the other gospel writers? As a doctor, he's going to have more insight into a wider variety of people because of his ministry as a doctor. Okay? So here's the conclusion. Matthew concentrates on Jesus and the kingdom. Okay, look at all the kingdom parables we talked about last week. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. He's the coming Messiah. He's the coming king. Whereas Luke concentrates on Jesus and the people. Okay? Not that one's wrong and one's right. It's just, what, synoptic. Different audience, same story, but told a different way for a different audience. Certain concepts are emphasized in Luke. Very interesting. When you go through the gospel of Luke, Jesus is praying more than in the other gospels. Jesus is portrayed as a man of prayer. He's always going off by himself and praying. He's always finding a good place to prayer. It talks more about Jesus praying. Not that, the other, not that he didn't do it in the other Gospels, but prayer is emphasized. Also, Luke is oftentimes called the Gospel of Joy because it talks about Jesus rejoicing. It talks about his disciples rejoicing. There's a lot of joy in the Gospel of Luke, more so than in some of the other Gospels. And also, the Holy Spirit which makes sense if he wrote Acts. The Holy Spirit is emphasized more in the Gospel of Luke than in the other epistles. The Holy Spirit, not the epistles, the Gospels. Getting my confused, confused here. The epistles we'll talk about in a few weeks when we get to the, the letters. Okay, the views of Jesus. Not so much the King, the Messiah, but the Son of Man. Why do you think, if, if, if Luke is focusing on a broad Gentile audience, he's the son of man. These, these Gentiles really don't care, if, not that they wouldn't care, but to them, Jesus being the promised Messiah that came from the line of David is important, but it doesn't make that much sense to them. But he's their Savior because he's the Savior of Gentiles as well as Jews, and he's the Savior and he's the teacher of parables. Now, I told you to go, um, we looked at last week when we compared the genealogy in Matthew to the genealogy in Luke. Where did gene- who was focused in Matthew's genealogy? Matthew had Abraham and David. Why was Abraham and David important? Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, David, the king of the Jews. Okay, if you look at Luke's genealogy, there in chapter 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 38, it goes all the way back to Adam. Why do you think that's important? His audience is not Jewish. His audience are Gentiles. It's a universal scope. It's all types of people. And so Jesus is not just the king of the Jews, but he's the savior of all those that have come from Adam, i.e. the Gentiles as well. 
Okay? All right, that's the background. What I want to do is I want to go and look at a few stories, see how many stories we can get through. I'm just trying to go, in these Gospels, I'm trying to bring out in each Gospel something different about Jesus that we don't see in the other ones. Okay? So let's look at uh, the sinful woman. Okay? Let's go to Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. And there's probably a lot of different accounts that we can read, but I've just picked some, some ones that kind of stuck out to me as I was going through and looking through Luke and preparing for this of some things that may not show up as much in the other Gospels and maybe some things to illustrate to you his focus on women, his focus on the poor, his focus on the unclean, because that's really what his focus is, is on, the, on those huge categories of, of disenfranchised people. So let's look at Luke chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment. That's hard to say. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, and he said to himself, okay? This is another thing in Luke. You'll find Luke's, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is always reading people's minds. <laughs> Jesus knew their thoughts. And so at this point, he's saying to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. So Jesus is going to tear up, tell a parable here, okay? A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, huge amount of money, and the other 50, not a very huge amount of money. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you're judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Okay. This story really shows us the magnitude of sin and the magnitude of grace. Okay. She had a lot of sin. Now, we don't know exactly what her sin was, but she's called a woman of the city. What do you think she was? Probably a prostitute, okay? Pretty scandalous to have a prostitute come walking into a Pharisee's house and then automatically start anointing Jesus' feet. I mean, this is scandalous. It was scandalous for any woman to have done this, but especially for a prostitute to have done this. And so it's making everybody feel uncomfortable. And the owner of the house is like, what are we going to do? We may have to get this woman out of here. Well, Jesus, why are you letting her do this? What, in his mind, he probably would have thought, if Jesus were smart and knew who she was, he would have shooed her away, he would have gotten her away, and he would have paid more attention to me because I'm this righteous Pharisee. 
But what did she understand? She came in weeping and mourning. What did we talk about last week in the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who mourn. What is she mourning? She's mourning over her sin, and she's pouring her life out in repentance to Jesus in a moment of an extravagant repentance, and Jesus forgives her right there on the spot of that sin and says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She, she had sinned much, and she had been forgiven much, and so she was expressing this joy in the fact that her sins were forgiven, and the Pharisee didn't quite get it. Why didn't the Pharisee get it? Because he thought to himself, I'm not a sinner. I'm pretty good. And Jesus is like, I came into your presence and you have no clue who I am. If you would have known who I was, you would have anointed me with oil. You would have washed my feet. You would have worshipped me. You would have given me your all. This woman's shown you up, Pharisee, because she understands who I am. She understands repentance. She understands forgiveness. And so there's an episode there where Jesus is showed portraying love and compassion to an outcast, a prostitute, and to a woman. Okay? Now, let's look at some radical words of Jesus, okay? Because Luke's got some radical words. Luke 9, 57 through 62. And, 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 okay, that's one portrait of Jesus, okay? This, this prostitute comes in and gets saved, and she, she repents, and there's this great moment. Now we move to um, this other portrait of Jesus where we're, we're kind of shocked in what he says, okay? And Jesus will often do that to us. He will shock us just when you think you've got him figured out. Don't, because we, 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 won't, we won't ever really truly figure out Jesus because he's always shocking us with his radical statements. Okay, let's look at Luke nine fifty seven. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but, lest, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Okay. <laughs> Some of you are shaking your heads like, pretty radical. So let's look at the first dude. Whoops. The first man didn't understand what it meant to follow Jesus. Okay. He comes to the first man approaches Jesus. He seeks Jesus out and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. His concept of followship or discipleship was based upon the rabbi culture. Okay. In that culture, you would seek out a rabbi. And when you found the rabbi that you liked, you would basically just sit at his feet and learn and maybe kind of do life with him. So this guy, I think, wanted to sit at Jesus' feet and just learn. And Jesus says, what does he say? If you really want to follow me, I'm going to be homeless. Do you want to truly follow me? He did not understand the total reorientation of life that might mean persecution or hardship. He just wanted to come and just... Like a lot of church people, I just want to come and hear some good preaching, but don't ask me to surrender my life to Jesus and actually follow him, and I may have to face persecution. So Jesus just point blank says, you really don't want to follow me, <laughs> okay? Does Jesus? This is interesting because in our culture, if somebody comes up and says, I want to be a Christian, what do we normally say? 
I see that hand. Come on down. Let's get you saved and baptized right here. This person comes up and says, I want to follow you. And Jesus is like, you want to be homeless, persecuted, and follow me to the death? No, you don't. <laughs> so he moves on to the next person. You're like, whoa, Jesus. Okay, the next person, Jesus actually approaches this guy. Okay, the first guy comes to Jesus. The second man doesn't come up to Jesus, but he's commanded by Jesus. And so what does Jesus say? Follow me. And the guy makes an excuse. He says, I need to go bury my father. Now, at first glance, that looks like a good excuse, right? In that culture, especially if you were like a firstborn son, burying your father was a very culturally acceptable thing to do. You wanted to give your father a proper burial. But he says, "Let what does Jesus say? Let the dead bury their own dead. Your job is to go preach the gospel. Now, is Jesus being cruel, saying, don't care about your dead dad? What does it mean, let the dead bury their own dead? Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Okay? Allegiance to Jesus trumps allegiance even to a dead family member. Now, is this absolute where, like, you're not supposed to? Is this, is this an absolute axiom where Jesus is saying, don't ever have a proper burial for your family members? Is that not, is, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that there's something more important than physical death, there's people that are spiritually dead and you need to go preach the gospel of the kingdom to them because it doesn't matter if they die and they don't ha- if, if they die without Christ, where are they going to spend eternity? They're not, they're not going to spend eternity with Christ. And so he's saying what's really important here is, yes, physical death is important, but spiritual death is, is a huge deal. So you go preach the gospel of the kingdom. Okay, let's talk about the third guy. The third man wants to follow Jesus. Okay, so the third one approaches Jesus this time, says, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. I want to follow you, but let me get some things in order first. Let me go back. Let me say goodbye. Now, when Jesus was called his disciples, remember when he called the first disciples and they were out there with their fishing boats? What did he say? Follow me. And what they do? Dropped their nets and followed him. Left their business right there. When he went to, to Matthew, the tax collector, and says, follow me, it says he left his tax collecting booth right there. and I mean, left his business, left everything. And so um, he wants to say goodbye to his family. It's very similar to 1 Kings 19, 19-21, when Elijah is calling Elisha to come be his successor. And Elisha says, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Let, let's turn there real quick and see the parallel. So keep your finger in Luke, and let's go back to 1 Kings 19, 1 Kings 19, verses 19 through 21. This is Elijah, J-A, not Sha, S-H-A. So, 1 Kings 19, 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what, I, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Now, in this situation... Elisha went back and took care of his family. But is Elijah and Jesus the same thing? When Jesus calls you, 
He's saying it's all or nothing. Jesus means, following Jesus means giving up everything we count dearest to treasure him above all. So let me ask you the question, is that too radical? Do we truly believe the words of Jesus? Or do we gloss over them and say, that's a cool statement, Jesus. Do we take face value to heart the radical demands of Jesus in following him? I'm not asking you to answer that. I'm just saying it's something to think about because there's a lot of radical statements that Jesus is going to make. Let's look at another radical statement. Let's go to Luke 13. I don't know why that didn't show up. Kind of PowerPoint's doing some weird things here. Well, let's look at Luke 13, 1 through 5. I'm pretty sure I know how to fill in the blanks here. What's up there? Okay, Luke 13, verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Are those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Okay, Jesus is addressing two natural disasters or two, two major national events that affected people that people were talking about. What's the first one he sees there? The mixing of the blood of these Galileans. Somehow these Galileans died by Pilate. Okay. The second issue was a tower fell on some people and killed somebody. Okay, so a natural disaster like a, like a hurricane or a bridge going out or, or 9-11 or any type of situation where some people get killed and everybody's wondering what in the world is happening here. And what does Jesus address? What's Jesus saying here? What's their, what's their thought process? They're probably thinking a yin-yang, right? What's yin-yang or karma? If I do bad things, towers are going to fall on me. Or if I do bad things, bad things are going to happen to me. So, but what happens when bad things happen to you and you've never done anything bad? Rabbi Kirshner wrote a book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Wrong question, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? Let's turn it on its head. Why do good things happen to bad people? Jesus is saying here, and this is a hard statement from Jesus. He's not being calloused when, like, there's a natural disaster here, and they come and say to Jesus, man, do you see all this stuff that's happening? What does Jesus say? Unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. Do you think they're any better than you are? Do you, think that they, do you think they did something bad to have this tower fell on them? No, we live in a fallen world, and the tower fell on them. It could easily fall on you. So what's your response? You must likewise repent, or you will perish. So Jesus is saying, nobody deserves grace, only judgment. So if bad things happen, God either allowed it to happen, or he ordained it to happen. The warning for us who are still alive is to repent, or we will perish. We aren't any better or deserve preferential treatment. Okay, is that another radical statement from Jesus? So... When something bad happens in our nation, how do we process that? What's the warning? 
Repent. Okay? Do you think God allows nat- national disasters to happen to get people's attention? Yes. So that people repent or they will likewise perish. Okay? I don't know why 9-11 happened. I don't know why the um, tsunami in Southeast Asia happened. I don't know why Hurricane Katrina happened. I don't know why um, the, the, a lot of things happened. The point is we may never know why, but those of us who are still alive, that it hasn't happened to us yet, it could happen to us. We're not above it. And that the warning is is that if we're not saved, we better repent or we will likewise perish. So when these bad things happen, it's a warning to people that are still alive that that could very well happen to me. I better get right with God. Okay. Very comfortable words from Jesus, right? All right. Let's go to Luke 15, which is really one of my favorite parts of Luke. You guys thought it was the parable of the prodigal son. Didn't you? Let me, t- let me try to shatter your, your viewpoint here. Let's look, at, let's look at verse 15, or chapter 15. Here's the setup for the parable. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives and eats with them. So he told them a parable, which goes all the way to the very end of chapter 15. This is literally a three-part parable. The lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. So the lost, the prodigal son is not a parable in and of itself. It's a part of a triplicate parable. It doesn't say he told them these parables. It's one big parable. And what's the point of the parable? What's the point Jesus is trying to get home? What's the setup? This man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus, why are you hanging out with sinners? So Jesus is going to tell three stories about how God the Father views sinners. What do we call people that are not Christians? We call them lost. Why do we call them lost? Because they're not found. I don't know. I mean... Why do we call them lost? Yeah, that's an easy one. Why do we call them lost? They're not born again. They're not born again. They'll, be They'll be separated. Okay. Let's look at these metaphors that Jesus tells. They all tell, these three parables all have the same one point. They're just told from three different perspectives, and there's the buildup. And then he drops the bombshell in the third, mini, third part of this parable. Okay. So let's look at the first one. Not the first parable, but the first mini. Here's the parable, point A, okay? So here's point point A parable. He told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that's lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just as I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Okay, so let's, let's look at some comparisons here. The first little section here is talking about what? A lost sheep. Okay. 
what happens to the sheep? It is found, recovered. What's the result of the finding of the sheep? There's great rejoicing. What was the impetus for the sheep being found? How does it end there? There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who... Okay. So when God saves a sinner, there has to be repentance, a turning. Okay? What's the next story? It's the lost. Okay, so we're going to see a pattern here. So let's look at the next story, the lost coin. Or what woman... Having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. How many of you have ever lost your keys or lost your cell phone or lost your remote? Or, and you like tear the whole house up looking for it and then you realize that the whole time it's in your pocket or it's like, you know, where are my glasses? They're like on your head or something. You know, you're, 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 she's tearing up the house trying to find it. Verse 9. And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who... Okay, so there's a lost coin. What happens to the coin? It's found. What rejoice? Well, what happens? There's rejoicing. And what's the, what's the cause of all this? A sinner repents. Okay, so... Pattern, pattern, pattern. Okay, you've got to lost something. It's found. There's rejoicing because of repentance. So Jesus is going to get to the prodigal son. So it's not in a vacuum. When we get to the prodigal son, do you think we're going to see this pattern? We should, but there's a caveat to it. Okay, so let's look at the story of the prodigal son. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. Very important. Okay, a lot of times we, don't, we, we only focus on the first son, two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between, between them. Now, this is the height of arrogance, the height of um, really blasphemy and disrespect. You would never go ask for inheritance from your father while he was still alive. I mean, basically, in that culture, that was just totally disrespectful. I mean, it was those that heard, the, the, those that heard this for the very first time would probably be thinking to themselves, that guy is whack. Why would he go ask his dad for inheritance before his dad's dead? That's the, that's the height of blasphemy and disrespect. That is not honoring your father and mother. But what does he do? The father gives it to him. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Okay, so what's going on here? We've got the lost son number one, because this is a parable of what? How many sons? Two sons. So this is son number younger, okay? He's the younger one. And what's his lifestyle like? Reckless. That's what the word prodigal means, reckless, reckless living. Okay, so he's living with the pigs. Now, it's very, very interesting. Look at the terminology in verse 17. Some of you tell me what your translation says in verse 17. What does it say there in your text? But when he came to his senses, he said, How many 
of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, for I am dying here with hunger. Okay, he came to his senses. Did somebody else have something? He came to himself. He came to himself. He came to his senses. Okay. Came to himself. This is the beginning of repentance. Because he comes to an acute awareness that what I'm doing is wicked. I am lost. Now, what is true repentance? Is repentance just feeling sorry for yourself? Is repentance just confessing that you've done bad? What is repentance? It's actually turning. So what does he have to do? He gets up out of the pig slop and returns home. He's going to repent. Okay, so let's, let's look here. He came to himself and said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have what? Sin. That's repentance. I'm acknowledging I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Okay, that's true repentance. Father, I know I've treated you like dirt. I am not worthy of, of, of your love. I'm not worthy of any treatment. Treat me like a slave. Me being a slave in your house is better than me being out here in wild living. So I will accept whatever punishment comes my way. I just want to come home. Okay? And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, this is unheard of. No self-respecting Jewish male would ever run in that culture. Much less run to the son that disowns you. Much less not even let him get his sentence out. And what do you do before the son even has anything, even have a chance to say anything? Has compassion, kisses, loves on his son. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again, for he was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Okay, so do we see the pattern? Lost son, he's found. How is he found? He's found by repentance. What happens? They... This time it uses the word they celebrate. There's a rejoicing. And in this parable, we have, who's the father in this parable? God the Father. Son number one represents a type of sinner that is a reckless, flagrant, immoral, out there sinner that everybody would look at and say, that's a party animal sinner. We can identify that guy as a sinner. And he's saved and he celebrates, and that's the end of the story, right? Is that how the parable ends? This is the parable of two sons. So let's, let's find out what son number, it's actually son number two, but it's actually the older son. What is the older, how does the older son respond to rejoicing over a sinner who repents? There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. The whole house is having a party because one sinner has repented. How does the older brother respond? With anger. Now let's look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brothers, come 
And your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, don't even call him my brother, this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. Now, what is the attitude of, or what's the characteristic of the the older son? He says, he's very religious, right? He's very moral. Father, I've done nothing but serve you. Father, I've done nothing but be a good person. Father, you owe me your grace because look at what I have done. I am a prideful, religious person that's appealing to the Father based upon my resume. God, you have to treat me good because I have done all these things. Which son needs salvation? Both. The reckless, immoral, flagrant pagan needs salvation and the prideful, religious, moral person who thinks that God owes them needs salvation. So there's a third son in the story. Jesus is the true son of the father that comes and can save both of these sons because neither one of these can live up to the righteousness that God requires. Now, in the immediate context, let's go back. Who is Jesus addressing? There were Pharisees who grumbled that this man receives sinners and eats with them. In this parable, who is the older son? Pharisees. The Pharisees. And who are the sinners and the, and, 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 and the, um, the outcast? The younger son. And Jesus says, both of you need salvation. It's just older son, you don't think you need it because you're basing your approval with God upon how good you are. Is that going to get you anywhere? Does your resume of goodness obligate God to save you? No. That's a works-based situation. So the bottom line, all parables have one point. What's the point? We can state it in one sentence. God rejoices to save lost sinners who repent, which is great news for all of us because how many of us here were, were found All of us at one time were lost and God has found us and it hinged upon repentance and there's this great rejoicing and we see the compassion of the Father. He has a heart for sinners. Whether that sinner happens to be a flagrant pagan or that sinner happens to be a happy moralist, which I think northeastern Colorado has both. We have our flagrant pagans and we have a lot of moral people that have grown up in church thinking they're okay with God because they were born in America and they were confirmed as a child and they have done something. You agree with what I'm saying? Only a sinner who repents, trusts. And notice what it says there. He was dead. Was the son dead? And he's alive. Did the son ever die in the story? What's Jesus referring there to? He was spiritually dead. He was spiritually dead and God made him alive. He was spiritually lost and God found him. Okay? All right. Let's move on to another interesting story that's only found in Luke's gospel. 
and that is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Okay, Luke chapter 16. All right, Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. Now, this is not the Lazarus that was raised from the dead in John chapter 11 that was a friend of Jesus that was the brother of Mary and Martha. Different Lazarus, okay? There was... Okay, at the gate was it laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good, your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you're in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. It's been fixed. In order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may also warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Okay, interesting story. You've got two men that both die. Where does Lazarus go? Let's be real careful with our terminology. There's, an, there's a big interpretation here depending on, on what camp you're in. But he goes to a place called Abraham's side or bosom. So we, and this is the only time it's really referred to as Abraham's bosom. So we've got to ask, what in the world is Abraham's bosom? Who was Abraham? Father, Father Abraham and many sons. Many sons said, Father, I'm one of them. So he's, let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, left arm. You know what I'll <laughs> Sorry. Anyway. Okay, so Abraham. He is the father of the Jewish people. Um, the thing that we need to really remember about Abraham was that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Um, Paul holds him up as an example of one who had faith. And so Abraham's bosom is, is really a metaphor for something. What is that something? Well, let's just let's keep moving through here. Okay. Is it a holding tank for Old Testament people that was divided into two sections? one for the righteous and one for the wicked. Okay? Those who hold to this view do not believe that Old Testament believers were brought into heaven until Christ conquered death in His resurrection. There are some solid evangelicals throughout the centuries that said when Old Testament people died, they did not immediately go to heaven. They went to a holding tank until Jesus died on the cross and sometime between His death in his resurrection, he went down and got them and brought them back up with him to heaven. Okay. That's a legitimate view. There's, there's a lot of people, that I think, I think even Calvin had that view. That, so that's a legitimate view that, that some people hold to. Again, we can't be dogmatic on this. Um, John 13, 23 says, There was reclining on... Why isn't that not showing up? There must be something. Probably Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Okay. 
John was reclining on Jesus' bosom on his side. And so there's this idea of when Jesus was at the Last Supper and you sat next to him, it was this idea of intimate presence at a, at a, at a, at a dinner table. Okay? The parallel metaphor of sitting in the presence of Christ at a banquet or supper is what happened to Lazarus. What's the setup to the story? The rich man sits at a banquet table and eats food, and Lazarus sits there and gets the scraps. So in this world, he does not get to sit at the banquet table. He gets to sit down here among the dogs. In Abraham's bosom, he's in the presence of Christ reclining at a banquet table in a celebration of joy next to Abraham, the father of the faithful. In other words, Lazarus the beggar was in a position as the guest of honor. This would tick off the Pharisees listening to this. Okay? So let me ask the question, where is Abraham's bosom? I have no idea. Is it heaven? Could be. Is it a holding tank? Could be. Can we be dogmatic? No. All we know is that, here's what I say, wherever Jesus is, that's where I want to be. So, it doesn't really matter spatially where we are as long as we're in the presence of Christ. That's what matters. Okay? Does that make sense? But here's, here's what I think is even more important. More important than where Abraham's bosom is because we know that it's, it's a good place to be. The opposite is where the rich man, and La- where the, where the rich man went. Okay. It says that he's where? In Hades. What does it say there? He talks about being in torment. He talks about flames. Okay. A couple things we need to understand about hell. There is eternal conscious torment in hell. Not annihilationism. Now, let me explain annihilationism because that's a, that's, a, that's a theological term. Jehovah's Witnesses and other groups believe in annihilationism. Annihilationism basically believes that a sinner basically is sent to hell and they suffer for a little while and then God just kills them off and they cease to exist. They don't live eternally in hell. They're just annihilated after a certain period of time. And they find this in Scripture where? Yeah, there's a a couple of, yeah. The Scriptures pretty much teach, and I'm I'm not going to go on a whole digression here, but the Scriptures pretty much teach it's conscious, you know what's going on, it's a place of torment, and it's eternal. Okay. Secondly, there's no second chance after death to receive Christ. Because what does he say? There's a great chasm that's been fixed. And those in hell can't come back over, and those in heaven can't come back. You can't go across the chasm. It's been fixed. So once you die, your eternity is sealed. There's no second chance after death. There's no purgatory. There's no second chance. It's fixed. Now, what does Lazarus want to have happen? Lazarus says to Abraham, send, send, or the rich man says to Abraham, send Lazarus back to my family because I don't want my family here. If my family knew the bad choices I made and I didn't believe, then I don't want them to come here. So send him back from the dead to go witness to my family members. And what does Abraham say? They've got Moses and the prophets. Now, that's an interesting statement. They've got Moses and the prophets. Okay? Metaphor for what? Last year in our... 
prophets is a metaphor for the prophets. Ultimately, what is, what is he saying? They've got the Old Testament, and interestingly, Jesus says that's enough for them to get saved. Why? If they don't believe the Old Testament, and later on we're going to get to this, what Jesus teaches about the Old Testament, what does the Old Testament ultimately point to? Jesus. So he says, even if you send somebody back from the dead to come witness to them, they've got a clear, they've had the clear teaching from the time they were kids in the Old Testament scriptures. It's enough for them to know the gospel of salvation. That's enough. They don't need some miraculous guy coming back from the dead and giving all these stories about how he went to heaven or hell and came back and wrote a book about it and told people, I was 10 minutes in heaven or I was 10 minutes in hell. I I don't know if that happened or not, but in the case of Lazarus, he says, no. There's an urgency. So there's an urgency to present both the law and the gospel, which leads to repentance. It's a very sobering passage of Scripture because it's the one passage of Scripture where you have a person that describes an actual person suffering in hell. And it uses the word torment and the word flames. Okay? All right, let's move on to something a little bit more uplifting, maybe. What's the sinner's prayer? Repeat after me. I see that hand. Dear Lord, dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to come into my heart. I ask you to come into my heart. After I said this prayer, I'm born again. After I said this prayer, I'm born again. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you're saved. You said the sinner's prayer. You said the magic words, right? I'm just joking around with you guys. Okay, What's the sinner's prayer? Okay, there is a sinner's prayer in the Bible, and we find it right here. Luke 18, 9 through 14. Very, very interesting story. Again, when you, especially when you look at the original language. Okay, Original language is so fun when you do Bible study because there's such nuances of meaning, and I'll, I'll bring those out to you um, when we look at this. Okay, So starting in verse 9 of chapter 18, he also told this parable to some who what? Mine says trusted in themselves. Now, that's interesting. What were they trusting in? Okay. They're trusting in themselves. Do we have a lot of people in our culture who trust in themselves? Who are we supposed to be trusting in for salvation? Christ. So Jesus gives us the setup for the parable. I'm telling this parable to those who are basically trusting in their own righteousness for salvation. Okay, here we go. That they were righteous, and not only that they were righteous, but how else did they act? They treated others with contempt. Not only were they saying, I got a special place with God, but those people don't, so I'm going to look down upon them. I mean, it was a double whammy. I'm trusting in myself, and I'm looking down on others. Okay? So here we go. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other the tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. I think the NIV says pray to himself. Okay. Now, let me just tell you a little bit about the temple. In the temple, there's the court of the Gentiles. There's the court of women. Then there's the inner courts where the Jews were allowed. And then then you can get closer to the Holy of Holies. And the closer you got, you couldn't go into the Holy of Holies, but the closer you got to the Holy of Holies, the, the, the more prominent people would see you. And Jewish men would pray with their hands up and usually out loud. So picture the Pharisee as close as, he, as close as he can get to the Holy of Holies without going in so that everybody can see him up high with his hands to heaven praying out loud so everybody can hear him, okay? And listen to what he says. 
God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. <laughs> I expect you to laugh when you read it. I mean, <laughs> dear Lord, thank you that I'm not like so-and-so. I mean, it's like, thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even, even like this tax collector over here. He calls them out. Then he starts giving his resume. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Okay. So at first glance, this guy's a pretty moral guy, right? He's got a great resume. I'm, an, I'm not an adulterer. I'm, 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 I'm faithful to my wife. I don't cheat on my taxes. I'm a good, upright citizen that plays by the rules. I'm a good guy. As a matter of fact, I, fa- I fast twice a week. Um, he's a good, upright, all-American citizen who plays by the rules. Now look at this next thing I said. And what's even scarier, he's not a pagan or an atheist. He believes in the sovereignty of God, doesn't he? Who's he praying to? God, I thank you. I'm giving thanks to you, God, in your sovereignty that I'm not like these other people. Thank you, God, that I've been spared being an adulterer. Thank you, God, that I've been spared all these things. He gives proper credit to God as the giver of all things. Secondly, not only is he very upright, but he's very religious. Notice that he fasts twice a week. I fast twice a week. Now, the law only required fasting once a year on the Day of Atonement. But this guy goes above and beyond what is required and fasts twice a week and tithes on everything. This guy, at first glance, you may want to be a leader in your church. He's upright. He's moral. He's a good citizen who shows up weekly for church. He reads his Bible, does his daily devotion. He maybe even teaches Sunday school. He obviously is praying. He's giving God credit that his life is not one of sin. And at first glance, he's the good guy. And the people that are hearing Jesus tell the story, they're probably thinking, well, this guy's got it all together. I mean, look at his resume. If there's anybody that we want to aspire to, it's this guy. Okay, so the people are thinking, all right, this is the man. And then Jesus is going to keep going. Look what he says. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Okay, let's look at the contrast. The tax collectors, where, where is he standing? He's standing far off. Now, why is this so important? He's desperate. He knows he's a sinner. He doesn't dare come close to the inner part of the temple. Maybe he's just close enough to think that he can be in God's presence, but still far enough away because of his shame. He doesn't barge into God's presence, but he stays at a distance. Now, where is the, 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 the Pharisee raising his hands and looking up to heaven, right? Where's this guy looking? This guy is looking down. He doesn't dare look up. And he's continually what? Beating his breast. Violent anguish. A display of contrition and pain. This guy is really mourning over his sin. I mean, he's over in a corner, a blithering idiot, crying out to God, beating his breast, won't even look up. And the people that are hearing this parable for the very first time are probably looking at the contrast saying, this guy's a hopeless case. This guy, yeah, he's a tax collector. He's he's the scum of the earth. He should be down there beating his breast. Okay, now let's look at the prayer. Let's look at the sinner's prayer. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. We often talk about leading people to this magical sinner's prayers of saying the sinner's prayer automatically saves a person. We get down the formula, repeat after me, blah, blah, blah. Um, 
This is from the heart, and it's very, very short. Notice what he says. Oops. I'm going the wrong way. (laughs) God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You don't get this in your English translations, but really it says the sinner, not just a sinner. He sees himself as what? The sinner. There may be a lot of other people out there, Lord, but I am the sinner. I am in your presence, Christ, as the sinner. I'm not hiding it. I'm not downplaying it. I'm not comparing myself to other people. I am coming clean to you, God, saying I am the sinner. And what does he ask God to do? This is where an understanding of the original language becomes very helpful. Let me translate this literally. Our translation says, God, be merciful to me. Literally, he says, God, propitiate me, the sinner. Now, we looked at the word propitiation, I think, a few weeks ago or maybe last week. God, propitiate me, the sinner. Now, what does it mean to propitiate? He's basically saying, God, I know I deserve your wrath. And the only way that your wrath can be taken away from me is if it's propitiated, meaning someone else takes it in my place, i.e., Christ absorbing the wrath of God. So when he says be merciful, it's not just, Lord, just be merciful. It's, it's, it's more, God, I know I deserve wrath, and I need someone as a substitute to take that wrath because I can't. If I were to take the full wrath of you, I would die and go to hell eternally. I can't stand that. I need someone to propitiate my wrath or, or your wrath. Now, here's the shocker. What's the shocker? Think about the original audience for a moment. Who do they think is the good guy? What does Jesus say in verse 14? I tell you, this man went down to his house, what? Justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. They're probably thinking to themselves, okay, this guy is going to be accepted. This guy is going to be justified. This guy is going to be declared righteous because he's obeying the law. He's a good Pharisee. And Jesus drops the bomb on them and says, no, it's this pitiful tax collector who's way off here in the distance beating his breast and crying out for mercy as some blithering idiot or child crying his heart out. That's the one that goes home in God's good graces, justified, because he understands that wrath needs to be propitiated. So Jesus shocks the audience who's actually accepted by God in the story, who's actually declared not guilty, who walks away having peace with God, the tax collector. That is, he was accepted by God. His record was wiped clean. He was declared innocent. He trusted in God's mercy for salvation, and God gave it to him. But the Pharisee, surprisingly, he didn't go home accepted by God. He didn't go home with his record wiped clean. He didn't go home declared innocent. He exalted himself and was humbled. In other words, trusting in self only leads to damnation, while trusting in Christ who humbling ourselves before Him leads to salvation. That's a, that's a stark contrast. So if you want to know a good prayer to pray, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, propitiate your wrath, the sinner. Thank you for Jesus propitiating that wrath for me, the sinner. All right, let's talk about Zacchaeus the Wheel Elman. And a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree. To... You guys remember the song? Obviously not, because I'm the only one singing. No. You're fine. Okay, let's go, to, let's go to chapter 19. 
And I always picture Danny DeVito when I see the story. I don't know why. I just always think of Danny DeVito as what? Or Joe Pesci or some short little guy. Some short little Jewish or Italian guy with you know, Joe Pesci or some. Yeah. All right. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now let's just stop real quick there. Tax collectors were hated by the culture because of a couple of things. Number one, they worked for the Roman government. Jews did not like Rome, and so if you worked for the enemy, that's, that's not a good thing. Number two, Rome said this, Hey, you have to collect X amount of taxes. I don't care how you get it, just get it. Anything you get over and above the top, you can keep for yourself. So let's say Rome said, I, I, want, ten, let's, I want 14%. That seems to be a term that's going on right now. I want 14% of taxes. And Zacchaeus could go to the people and shake them and say, Rome wants 25% of taxes, so hand it over. So they, Zacchaeus gets 25% and gives 14% on to Rome and keeps the rest. So you can become very, very rich by extortion, by manipulating the system. So um, he, he's detested, and he's probably a wicked, guilty guy of doing this. So here's what happens. Verse 3, he was seeking to see who Jesus was. He didn't really know who Jesus was, but he was seeking to see it. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, you come down. No, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. Ah, he's gone to be the guest of the man who's a sinner. There's that Jesus again, going into people's homes as a sinner, hanging around sinners. Jesus must love sinners. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Why is Jesus always hanging around sinners? Praise the Lord, he hangs around sinners because none of us would be saved if he wasn't hanging around sinners. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now that's some serious repentance. Not just repentance, but restitution. What does he say he's going to do? I'm going to restore it fourfold. Now, normally you'd think, okay, whatever I took from people, I'll just pay it back. But he says, I'll pay back four times as much. Now, here's where we need to be real careful. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Was Zacchaeus saved because he gave his money back to the poor? Or was he saved by grace and that was a result of him? It was the, it was the repentance that came by grace that showed itself in, in concrete action. Because Jesus says he is also a son of Abraham. Meaning, who's a son of Abraham? One who is justified by faith alone, through Christ alone, by believing. And so... Zacchaeus believed Jesus and evidence that he had repented and believed was that it showed forth in fruit, demonstrable fruit. Now, here's verse 10, a very, a very good statement. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. <laughs> How many times have we seen that word lost show up? Lost coin, lost sheep, lost son, lost tax collector, lost wee little man. Um, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, who does the seeking? That person's a seeker. We need to have a seeker-sensitive service. We need to have a seeker-driven service because there's so many people seeking. What does the Bible say? Does anybody seek God? There's none that seek God. Who seeks? 
Jesus. I have a friend that says, yeah, we need to have seeker-sensitive services as long as we understand Jesus is the seeker. (laughs) Are the services sensitive to him? The seeker-sensitive service is Jesus is the seeker. He came to seek and to save the lost. Aren't you glad that Jesus sought you and bought you? How's that song go? Victory victory in Jesus. We sang it Sunday. Country style with the harmonica. Okay. Now let's get to the very exciting part as we kind of wind things down here. Uh, Luke chapter 24, the road to Emmaus. This, is, this shows up in Luke. It doesn't show up in any other, other Gospels. Um, it's after the resurrection. And so a couple of his disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus. It's like seven miles from Jerusalem. They're freaking out because Jesus has died and don't know what happened. And so Jesus begins to pop up and starts the conversation with them and they're walking along the road and he starts talking to them and they kind of tell him the story. Yeah, we, we were following this guy named Jesus and he died and he got buried in a tomb and, and we really don't know what happened. And they're, and they're telling the story to Jesus, but they don't know it's Jesus, okay? Which is weird in and of itself. Like, why didn't they know it was Jesus? Well, here, let, let's pick up in verse 25 of Luke 24. Luke chapter 24, verse 25. And he said, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. All that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I would have wanted to be there when Jesus preached that sermon. Because he went all the way back to who? I'm going to go from Genesis to Malachi, and I'm going to give you guys a lesson in showing to you how the Old Testament points to me. So Jesus sets up how to interpret the Old Testament right here. How do we interpret the Old Testament? Do we interpret it as Jewish people? No. We interpret the Old Testament as everything in there is either pointing to Jesus as a type and shadow of Jesus, is setting the stage for Christ. And he teaches his disciples. And as we went through Acts, I know it wasn't that long ago, but we went through a whole year of Acts. In those early sermons, When Peter was preaching and when Stephen was preaching, what did they do? They went back to the Old Testament to the Jews and showed how Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. So Jesus goes back and, I mean, it would have been amazing. I mean, I wish wish we would have had the gaps filled in there. I wonder how long it would have taken. All right, boys, let's start in Genesis. All right, let's move to Exodus. Let's move, and it goes all the way to Malachi, the whole Old Testament. Okay, now let's look at verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. It's interesting, Jesus, post-resurrection, he's in a body, he's eating. So it's a literal body. He's still praising God. And after he gave thanks, look at verse 31. And their eyes were opened... And they recognized him. And just when they thought things were great, he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Did not our hearts burn? 
isn't it exciting to learn about Jesus, especially when Jesus is teaching you about himself? I mean, that would have been, that would have been so awesome. And they're like, man, there was something so special about it. when Jesus was talking to us about Daniel and the lion's den and all, and all this kind of stuff. Weren't our hearts burning within us? And I, I pray as Christians, when we read the Bible and we hear about Jesus being preached, we have that same burning. Not the Mormons. The Mormons have a burning in the bosom. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about an excitement that comes from seeing Christ revealed in the Scriptures. Okay, let's keep going. Let's go down to um, chapter 24, verses 44 and 48-48. Okay, these are some of the last words of Jesus in Luke. Okay, so there's not a great commission. In Matthew, there was the great commission. In Mark, we saw the, the great commission in Mark was... Go into all creation and preach the gospel. The Great Commission in Matthew is what? Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded. Behold, I'm with you always until the end of the age. Here's the Great Commission in Luke's gospel. Verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, okay, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the prophets... And the Psalms, that's shorthand for all the Old Testament there. Everything written about me in all the Old Testament must be fulfilled. Look what he does again. Then he opens their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, The Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead, and what? Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be what? Proclaimed in His name to where? All nations, beginning where? From Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Luke ends with the cliffhanger. What's the cliffhanger? You wait. Wait for the promise. And when the promise from on high comes, you will receive power and be my witnesses. Okay, how does Acts begin? They're waiting. And the Holy Spirit comes and gives them power, and they become witnesses starting where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But what Jesus says here is that, okay, guys, here's your marching orders. It's all about my death, my burial, and my resurrection. So that's the gospel. What are you to do with that message? You're to preach it. And what are you to preach about it? You're to preach repentance and forgiveness to who? All nations. How's it going to happen? It's going to happen when the Holy Spirit gives you power to do it. So just wait until this happens. And then Jesus goes up to heaven. So what are our marching orders as Christians today? Are we faithful in preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins By telling people about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, are we doing this to all nations in the power of the Holy Spirit? That's the the job of the church. That's yours and mine job. The ultimate call of our lives is to tell people about Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit so that they would repent and understand forgiveness of sins. And it's not just for us, but it's to all the nations. To the Bogota of India, to the Russians, to the Hispanics, to China, to all the people groups of the world. Okay, we got done with enough time for questions, comments, or snide remarks.
So, what questions do you guys maybe had so far the past couple weeks? Next week we're going to dive into the Gospel of John. Yes, ma'am. Um, they were not written as one book, but they probably should be written read together. Go look at the introductory to Acts. Remember how Luke started? We just saw how Luke started. Oh, Theophilus, I decided to compile all of these eyewitnesses and write to you an orderly account about Jesus. Look at Acts chapter 1. And <laughs> when we get to Acts in a few weeks, and I'm, 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 gonna, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Acts, guys, because I preached a whole year on it, so hopefully... By now, you're like, okay, I've heard enough of Acts. But I want to show you there in Acts 1.1. What does he say? In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. In my former book, I talked about Jesus. In my next book, Jesus has gone back up. The Holy Spirit comes back down. Now it's time for us to talk about the church. Okay? So yes, they technically should be read together because you get a flow. And if you look at a lot of commentaries, they talk about Luke, Luke slash Acts. Not one book. They're two separate books. One's a gospel and one's a history. But it is beneficial to read the two together.